nice it would be to have you back, Mr. Bryce. When you enter the office, it's like a breeze rustling the tops of the redwoods. And your father misses you so. He talks to me a great deal about you. Why, of course, we miss you. Anybody would. As he held her hand, he glanced down at it and noted how greatly it had changed during the past few months. The skin was no longer rough and brown, and the fingers, formerly stiff and swollen from hard work, were growing more shapely. From her hand his glance roved over the girl, noting the improvements in her dress and the way the thick, wavy black hair was piled on top of her shapely head. "'It hadn't occurred to me before, Moira,' he said with a bright impersonal smile that robbed his remark of all suggestion of masculine flattery. "'But it seems to me I'm unusually glad to see you also. You've been fixing your hair different.' The soft, lambent glow leaped again into Moira's eyes. He had noticed her, particularly. "'Do you like my hair done that way?' she inquired eagerly. I don't know whether I do or not. It's unusual, for you. You look mighty sweetly old-fashioned with it coiled in back, somewhat like an old-fashioned daguerreotype of my mother. Is this new style the latest in hairdressing in Sequoia? I think so, Mr. Bryce. I copied it from Colonel Pennington's niece, Miss Sumner. Oh, he replied briefly. You've met her, have you? I didn't know she was in Sequoia still. She's been away, but she came back last week. I went to the Valley of the Giants last Saturday afternoon, Bryce interrupted. You didn't tell my father about the tree that was cut, did you? he demanded sharply. No. Good girl. He mustn't know. Go on, Moira. I interrupted you. I met Miss Sumner up there. She was lost. She'd followed the old trail into the timber, and when the trees shut out the sun, she lost all sense of direction. She was terribly frightened and crying when I found her and brought her home. Well, I swan, Moira. What was she doing in our timber? She told me that once, when she was a little girl, you had taken her for a ride on your pony up to your mother's grave. And it seems she had a great curiosity to see that spot again, and started out without saying a word to anyone. Poor dear! She was in a sad state when I found her. How fortunate you found her! I've met Miss Sumner three or four times. That was when she first came to Sequoia. She's a stunning girl, isn't she? "'Perfectly, Mr. Bryce. She's the first lady I've ever met. She's different.' "'No doubt. Her kind are not a product of homely little communities like Sequoia. And for that matter, neither is her wolf of an uncle. What did Miss Sumner have to say to you, Moira?' "'She told me all about herself, and she said a lot of nice things about you, Mr. Bryce, after I told her I worked for you.' and when I showed her the way home, she insisted that I should walk home with her. So I did, and the butler served us with tea and toast and marmalade. Then she showed me all her wonderful things, 
and gave me some of them. Oh, Mr. Bryce, she's so sweet. She had her maid dress my hair in half a dozen different styles until they could decide on the right style, and... And that's it, eh, Moira? She nodded brightly. I can see that you and Miss Sumner evidently hit it off just right with each other. Are you going to call on her again? Oh, yes. She begged me to. She says she's lonesome. I dare say she is, Moira. Well, her choice of a pal is a tribute to the brains I suspected her of possessing. And I'm glad you've gotten to know each other. I've no doubt you find life a little lonely sometimes. Sometimes, Mr. Bryce. How's my father? Splendid. I've taken good care of him for you. Moira, you're a sweetheart of a girl. I don't know how we ever managed to wiggle along without you. Fraternally, almost paternally, he gave her radiant cheek three light little pats as he strode past her to the private office. He was in a hurry to get to his desk, upon which he could see through the open door a pile of letters and orders, and a moment later he was deep in a perusal of them, oblivious to the fact that ever and anon the girl turned upon him her brooding, Madonna-like glance. That night Bryce and his father, as was their custom after dinner, repaired to the library, where the bustling and motherly Mrs. Tully served their coffee. This good soul, after the democratic fashion in vogue in many Western communities, had never been regarded as a servant, neither did she so regard herself. She was John Cardigan's housekeeper, and as such she had for a quarter of a century served father and son their meals and then seated herself at the table with them. This arrangement had but one drawback, although this did not present itself until after Bryce's return to Sequoia and his assumption of the direction of the Cardigan destinies, for Mrs. Tully had a failing common to many of her sex. She possessed for other people's business an interest absolutely incapable of satisfaction, and she was, in addition, garrulous beyond belief. The library was the one spot in the house which, at the beginning of her employment, John Cardigan had indicated to Mrs. Tully as sanctuary for him and his. Hence, having served the coffee this evening, the amiable creature withdrew, although not without a pang as she reflected upon the probable nature of their conversation and the void which must inevitably result by reason of the absence of her advice and friendly cooperation and sympathy. No sooner had Mrs. Tully departed than Bryce rose and closed the door behind her. John Cardigan opened the conversation with a contented grunt. "'Plug the keyhole, son,' he continued. "'I believe you have something on your mind, "'and you know how Mrs. Tully resents the closing of that door. "'Estimable soul that she is, I have known her to eavesdrop. "'She can't help it, poor thing. She was born that way.' "'Bryce clipped a cigar and held a lighted match while his father smoked up. "'Then he slipped into the easy chair beside the old man.' "'Well, John Cardigan,' he began eagerly, "'fate ripped a big hole in our dark cloud the other day "'and showed me some of the silver lining. 
I've been making bad medicine for Colonel Pennington. Partner, the pill I'm rolling for that scheming scoundrel will surely nauseate him when he swallows it. What's in the wind, boy? We're going to parallel Pennington's logging road. Inasmuch as that will cost close to three-quarters of a million dollars, I'm of the opinion that we're not going to do anything of the sort. Perhaps. Nevertheless, if I can demonstrate to a certain party that it will not cost more than three-quarters of a million, he'll loan me the money. The old man shook his head. I don't believe it, Bryce. Who's the crazy man? His name is Gregory. He's Scotch. Now I know he's crazy. When he hands you the money, you'll find he's talking real money, but thinking of Confederate greenbacks. For a sane Scotchman to loan that much money without collateral security would be equivalent to exposing his spinal cord and tickling it with a rat-tail file. Bryce laughed. Pal, he declared, if you and I have any brains, they must roll around in our skulls like buckshot in a tin pan. Here we've been sitting for three months and twiddling our thumbs, or lying awake nights trying to scheme away out of our difficulties, when if we'd had the sense that God gives geese, we would have solved the problem long ago and ceased worrying. Listen now with all your ears. When Bill Henderson wanted to build the logging railroad which he afterwards sold to Pennington, and which Pennington is now using as a club to beat our brains out, did he have the money to build it? No. Where did he get it? I loaned it to him. He only had about eight miles of road to build then, so I could afford to accommodate him. How did he pay you back? Why, he gave me a ten-year contract for hauling our logs at a dollar and a half a thousand feet, and I merely credited his account with the amount of the freight bills he sent me until he'd squared up the loan, principal and interest. Well, if Bill Henderson financed himself on that plan, why didn't we think of using the same time-honored plan for financing a road to parallel Pennington's? John Cardigan sat up with a jerk. "'By thunder!' he murmured. That was as close as he ever came to uttering an oath. "'By thunder!' he repeated. "'I never thought of that. "'But then,' he added, "'I'm not so young as I used to be, "'and there are any number of ideas "'which would have occurred to me twenty years ago, "'but do not occur to me now.' "'All right, John Cardigan, I forgive you. "'Now, then, continue to listen.' To the north of that great block of timber held by you and Pennington lie the Redwood holdings of the Trinidad Redwood Timber Company. Never heard of them before. Well, timber a 